0: Good morning and welcome again. We're certainly glad that you're here today. We're always thankful for the opportunity to be together. We appreciate those of you that are visiting. We have a number of our own people that are away since it is a holiday weekend, and we pray for their safe travels. If you're traveling, we want to keep you in our prayers as well. We always appreciate having visitors in our midst. We're so grateful that you have chosen to come and honor us with your presence. I do want to make mention of the fact that Wade Webster is here today with his family, and Wade is a great gospel preacher, and we appreciate him and his family so very much, and we certainly appreciate them coming our way today, and we're thankful that you're here. We're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 through 38 in our study today. As we look at Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 through 38... I want us to think for a minute or two about the theme, if you don't sow anything, you can't reap anything. I'm not a farmer. I have never been a farmer. But I do know that in the springtime, those who are farmers will typically spend a lot of time making preparation for a harvest. They work and till the soil. They plant the seeds. The goal is, of course, to reap a great harvest. From a spiritual standpoint, we should never expect to reap anything if we don't sow anything. I want you to look with me for a minute or two about Matthew's account of Jesus in his personal ministry. I wanna begin today by talking first of all about the operation of the Lord's ministry. Note if you would what Matthew says, that Jesus went about all the cities and villages teaching in their synagogues. Jesus Christ, as you well know, began his earthly ministry at the age of about 30. He labored for about three and a half years. During the course of that time, he did an extensive amount of teaching, preaching, and healing. The Lord was very busy in his work. He was productive. He understood that he had a very limited amount of time, and so he worked, and he worked diligently. Jesus, of course, was in Galilee. And he was going about the cities and the villages and he was preaching the gospel of the kingdom. So I want you to think with me first of all about the message that he preached. There are a couple of things that are interesting about the message that Jesus preached. First I think about the fact that it was a message that involved a new birth. You see in John chapter 3 when the Lord Jesus Christ had a personal one-on-one conversation with a man by the name of Nicodemus, and Nicodemus was a ruler among the Jewish people. Jesus said to that teacher in the long ago, that rabbi, the Lord said, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus, of course, thought he was talking about a physical birth. So he asked the question, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And so Jesus said, verily, verily, truly, truly, I say to you, except a man be born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now the kingdom that he was talking about was the same kingdom that Daniel had foretold of centuries earlier. Daniel, you will will recall, talked about the fact that God would establish a kingdom in the days of the Roman kings. And he said that kingdom would stand forever. Daniel, of course, talked about the four world empires that would rise and fall in successive order, beginning, of course, with the kingdom of Babylon, over which Nebuchadnezzar served as king. But Daniel said in the days of these kings, that is, in the days of the Roman kings, God himself would set up a kingdom that would never be destroyed, When John the Baptizer and John the Baptist was the forerunner to the Christ, he sought to point people in the direction of the Son of God. When he began his public ministry, he said, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's the same institution that Jesus talked about during his earthly ministry. The disciples, many of the people of that day, misunderstood the spiritual nature of that kingdom. They thought he was talking about a physical institution. The Lord was talking about a spiritual institution. And those today who have experienced the new birth are a part of that kingdom. As Jesus said, those who are born of the water and of the spirit. That is, they put their faith and trust in Jesus as the Son of God. They identify Him as God's only Son. They understand the importance of turning from a life of sin through repentance as Peter said in Acts 2.38. They confess the name of Christ, as the eunuch did in Acts 8, verse 37. And then they are immersed in water so that every sin can be washed away, Acts 22, verse 16. So Jesus, in preaching the gospel of the kingdom, first talked about how it involved a new birth, and then secondly, new blessings. You think about the nation of Israel, God's chosen people. Into their hands had been committed the oracles of God according to Romans chapter 3. They had been the custodians of the law. They were looking for the Messiah. Under the old law, the Hebrew writer said that there was a reminder, a remembrance of sin every year according to Hebrews chapter 10 verse 4. The new covenant, however, would bring new blessings. There would not be that annual reminder of sin every year. But rather God said through the prophet Jeremiah as recorded in the book of Hebrews in chapter 8 verse 12. I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. So here God promises to forgive and to forget in the sense he'll no longer hold those sins against people. So we talk about everything that the gospel of the kingdom entails. It entailed a new birth and new blessings. And today all spiritual blessings reside in Christ Jesus according to Ephesians 1.3. Every spiritual blessing that we hope to enjoy in this life, it's in Christ. So it's a blessing, it's a privilege to be in Christ. And then I want you to think about the miracles that Jesus performed. Note if you would... What Matthew said Jesus is going about the villages, he's teaching in their synagogues, he's preaching the gospel of the kingdom. And Matthew said he's healing every sickness and every disease among the people. First, I think about the power of his miracles. It's interesting to me that Matthew said that Jesus Christ, the very Son of God, healed every disease and every sickness among the people. I understand that there are physicians today that specialize in a certain part of the body or it might have to do with a certain organ in the body. And so that's where their expertise lies. But you see, Jesus Christ had the ability to heal every sickness. Every disease, there were no exclusions. There was nothing that Jesus could not handle. I think about physicians today. You can go and lay your case before them. You can talk about some of the things that are bothering you. You can talk about all of the symptoms that you've been having, and it might be the case that the doctor will say in a very plain and forthright way, there's just nothing I can do. I can't help you. Some would even be honest enough to say, I don't know, but not Jesus. No, Jesus Christ had the power to heal every illness, every sickness, and every disease. That ought to say something about the Son of God to us. And then I think about the purpose of his miracles. Why did Jesus heal the sick? Why did he go about performing so many, many miracles? Well, Jesus himself said in John chapter 5, verse 36, The very works that I do bear witness of me, that the Father has sent me. In other words, the miracles that Jesus did lended credibility or authenticity to the fact that he was who he claimed to be, the divine Son of God. You think about Jesus Christ the very son of the living God, he has the ability to perform the miraculous. Now John would tell us in chapter 20, many of the signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But he said, these are written, that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. Now, when you look at that passage, you see that the miracles, the signs, That were performed by Jesus and recorded in the book of John as well as the other gospel narratives. The intent was to lend authenticity to the message and to lend authenticity to the fact that Jesus was God's only son. There's a second thing I want you to see in our study. We talk about the operation of the Lord's ministry, but I want you to note with me in the second place the observation in the Lord's ministry. And the first thing that I want you to do is look with me in verse 36. Matthew said, when he saw the multitudes. A couple of things here. First, we come face to face with the compassion of Jesus. The Bible says, when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion. In other words, Jesus had pity, active pity, towards the multitude of people on this occasion. One of the great things about the Lord Jesus Christ is that he is compassionate. The Lord Jesus has the ability to sympathize with us. He understands He feels our hurts. He understands our needs. But as I think about the fact that Jesus was compassionate on this occasion, there are a couple of reasons why he was compassionate. First of all, because he saw the weariness of the people. Matthew tells us that Jesus saw them He had compassion for them because they were weary. The people were weary. They were fainting. You ever thought about what a terrible burden sin is in the lives of people? Why did Jesus come to earth? You remember what he said to Zacchaeus in Luke chapter 19 verse 10? The Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost. Jesus Christ came to alleviate the burden of sin. Because individuals who are living in sin are literally enslaved. They're in bondage to sin. Jesus would say in Matthew chapter 11, come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden. The promise being, I will give you rest. There are a lot of people in our world today, the message they need to hear is the gospel. Why? Because they're burdened by sin. Sin has literally destroyed them. Physically, emotionally, mentally, and most of all, spiritually. So here were people that were weary. And then Matthew tells us, not only was Jesus compassionate because they were weary, but also because they were scattered. Here were people not only wearied, but they were wandering. Wandering. He says, they were scattered like sheep having no shepherd. Think about that for a minute. When individuals live in sin, first of all, they need to understand that sin always leads downward, doesn't it? When people live a life of sin, what they need to understand is they're living beneath themselves. God wants us to enjoy the blessings of redemption. To come out of a life of sin. And you can read about a lot of people in scripture. That were plagued with the problem of sin. I think about the prodigal son in Luke 15. You know the story. Jesus talked about that young man that asked his father for an inheritance. His father granted that inheritance. Not many days after. He gathered all together. Took a journey into a far country. And there wasted his substance with riotous or profligate living. And the Bible says, when he had spent all. You want to talk about a guy that was a train wreck. Here's a man that had been entrusted, a young man that had been entrusted with his father's inheritance. And rather than being a good steward of that, as we say, he went out and blew it, wasted it. And so, his life spiraled out of control. It was on a downward trend, as we say. And then I think about how when those who live in sin are faced with the prospects of this downward trend, I think about the fact that they lack direction in life. Don't you like to know where you're going? Don't don't you like to to know the purpose of life. The devil wants to keep people bound in a life of sin because when people are in sin, they're scattered, they're wandering. They're in search of something and they're trying to fill that void in life with any and everything but God. I like the words of Solomon in Ecclesiastes chapter 12. Solomon had the opportunity to experience a lot of things in life. And you can go back and read the book of Ecclesiastes. Solomon, as you well know, was a man of great power. He was the king over Israel, the United Kingdom. He was a man of prominence. He identifies himself as a great man in chapter 1. He was a man that had many, many possessions. You can read in chapter 2 of all the possessions that he was a steward over. He was a man of immense pleasure. He said whatever his eyes desired, he did not withhold from them. So here was a guy that tried everything in life, but there was still this innate void in life. And so after having placed life under a microscope, Solomon said, let me tell you what life's all about. Here's the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is man's all, as some translations say. In other words, this is what life's all about. You think the devil wants you to know what life's all about? The devil wants you to stay in a state of weariness. He wants you to live with the burden of sin. The devil wants you to live the life of a scattered, struggling, wandering individual. And so... First of all, I think about the compassion of Jesus and then the concern of Jesus. Note if you would verse 37. In verse 37, Jesus sees that there is a potential for harvest. Note what he says in verse 37. The harvest truly is plentiful. In other words, Jesus understands that there's a great harvest out there, but there's a problem. What's the problem? He said the harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. So, concern on the part of the Son of God. Here is Jesus Surveying the multitude of people. He sees these people scattered like sheep, having no shepherd. With his keen perception, he talks about the plentiful harvest. But he says, here's the real problem. There are just a few laborers. So, I want you to think with me in the third place very quickly. About the obligation to the Lord's ministry, because I think really this is where we come in. Jesus had just said, "The harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few." So how, how do you how do you address this problem? What are you going to do? Well, first of all, he says you need to pray to the Lord of Harvest. And there are a couple of things that I wanna share with you along these lines. Because I think that we are a part of this equation. Jesus said you need to pray to the Lord of harvest. Well, why do you need to pray? Number one, you need to pray for an open home. Think for a minute about the Apostle Paul. A lot of things could be said about Paul. He was no doubt a great missionary, a great evangelist, And there will be many, many people in heaven because of the efforts of the Apostle Paul. When he wrote to the church at Colossae in Colossians chapter 4, Paul, of course, was a prisoner in Rome, one of the four prison epistles. And so Paul encourages these people to pray. He said, continue steadfastly in prayer, watching therein with thanksgiving. And then he says, praying also for us, well, why would Paul want the church at Colossae to pray for him, to pray for him and those identified as his co-laborers? He said, pray that a door might be open to us, that we might share the mystery of Christ for which I'm in chains. There are a lot of things Paul could have asked these people to have prayed for, Pray for his health, his well-being. Pray for his mental state. Pray that he will be treated fairly and justly by Roman authorities. Pray that he might be released. Let me tell you what Paul prayed for. Here he is in prison, and Paul is praying for an open door. Now, in our terms, what we're praying for is is an open home. There's a second thing I want to add to this. Pray not only for an open home, but pray for an open heart. You see, Jesus said, the harvest truly is plenteous, plentiful, but the laborers are few. I said just a moment ago that this is where we come in. We have the awesome task of taking the gospel into all the world. I want to challenge you this morning. I want to challenge you to see yourself as a laborer in the kingdom of God. And I want to challenge you to do two things. Number one, pray for an open home. Number two, pray for an open heart. Do you remember in Acts chapter 17, verse 11, Paul and Silas had been run out of Thessalonica? They make their way to the city of Berea, and Luke said that the Bereans were more noble than those in Thessalonica, in that they received the word of God with all readiness of mind and searched the scriptures daily to see whether those things were so. Let me tell you what. In Berea, there were people with... An open Bible and an open heart. I want to challenge you today. I want to challenge you to identify one person. It might be a family member. It might be a friend. It might be a coworker, a classmate. It might be your next-door neighbor. It might be somebody that trades with you in your business. Identify one person, just one. I'm not asking you to identify 10 people, 15 people, 20 people, just one you identify that one person and you pray that God will open a door so that you will have the opportunity to teach them the gospel of Christ. Pray for an open home. Pray for an open heart. There are people in your family that will not be in heaven unless you teach them. There are people that you work with that will not be in heaven unless you teach them. There are people that you go to school with that will not be in heaven unless you teach them. What a massive, awesome responsibility rests on us. Now, Jesus said, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. That is an overwhelming charge. But if we break it down and view ourselves as laborers in the kingdom of, kingdom of God, and if we will just focus on one person, you ever thought about the significance of one in Scripture? Read Luke 15. The lost, the lost sheep, the lost coin, the lost son. One person is worth everything to Almighty God. God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Now, What you need to do, beginning today, take you an index card, make you a note somewhere, and just say, you know what, I'm going to start praying right now for an open home and an open heart. And once you get the opportunity, you teach that person the gospel. If you don't feel equipped to sit down and talk to somebody one-on-one, then by all means, talk to Jared or me or one of the elders or Billy or somebody. We'll teach them. We'll do our best. But if you look at the text, Jesus said, first of all, pray to the Lord of harvest. Second thing here, we must be productive in order for the Lord to harvest. You remember what I said a minute ago regarding the theme of our lesson today, if you don't sow anything, you can't reap anything. Imagine a farmer, somebody that's going to expect a harvest in the fall, not taking the time in the spring to work and till the land, not taking the time to sow the seed. Now I want to ask you a question. If a farmer does not sow the seed in the springtime, can he expect a harvest in the fall? Absolutely not. It would be ridiculous To think that there's ever going to be a harvest If no seed is planted In the ground Here's the point If we don't sow the seed of the kingdom There will not be a harvest That's why it's imperative That we take Responsibility Identify one person Just one I don't care if you're young or old Doesn't matter if you're a male or female Identify one person person and you sow that seed remember Jesus talked about it in Luke chapter 8 that honest and good heart if somebody has an honest and good heart you know what the Bible says it will yield fruit I have no there, there's nothing I can do once that seed has been planted in terms of bringing it to harvest I don't have any control of the seed but I do have the control of When it comes to the sowing of that seed. Paul would say in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Who then is Paul? Who is Apollos? But ministers through whom you believed. You are the conduit to reaching people for Christ. Listen very carefully please. Into our hands the gospel has been given if we don't sow the seed of the kingdom, God's work will not be done. There will be no harvest. So you think about sowing the seed of the kingdom. Think about it this way. Why should we expect the church here to grow if we do not plant the seed? It's ridiculous to think that the church here will grow numerically and spiritually if we never sow the seed not just my job it's not just billy's job or jared's job or the elder's job it's all all of our job all of us have the responsibility of taking the gospel each and every one of us has that task we just got to make up our, our minds that this is what we're going to do so my question to you is are you willing to sow the seed If you don't sow anything, you can't expect to reap anything. The church in many, many places is dying. The church in many, many places is being boarded up. Congregations that at one time had hundreds of people. What happened? Let me tell you what happened. Somebody quit sowing the seed of the kingdom. When we quit sowing the seed of the kingdom... God's work's not going to be done. So I want to challenge you this morning. I want to challenge you to identify one person, just one, and you make it your goal to teach them the gospel. It may be the case they don't obey the gospel. Move on. It may be the case that they obey the gospel. You tell them once they obey the gospel to go and share the same message that they heard to someone they know. And you go on to the next person. I'm grateful to be a Christian. I'm grateful to have the opportunity to preach and to teach. But I also understand it is a team effort. All of us have to view ourselves as laborers in the kingdom of God. It might be the case That some of us need to hear the words of Jesus When he said on one occasion Why do you stand here idle all day Time is passing And we are We're losing time And once that time has gone You can't get it back So what we have to do is Exercise wisdom When it comes to our time And use it For the glory of God it might be that you're here today, you're not a Christian. I want you to know that Christ paid the ultimate price for your sins. The Bible says God commendeth his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5, verse 8. The Bible says that Jesus paid the price so that you might have the, so that you might have the blessings of eternal life. What would you need to do to become a child of God? Just what I said earlier, be born again. Put your faith and trust in Jesus as a son of God. Repent of your sins, confess his name before others, be baptized into Christ, just like they did on Pentecost Day. If you do what they did, you'll become what they were, a New Testament Christian. God will put you in the church, Acts 2:47). You'll enjoy all spiritual blessings, Ephesians 1, 3. You'll enjoy the quality of life defined as eternal. Titus chapter one, verse two. If you're faithful until death, the promise is the crown of life. Wouldn't it be great one day to be in heaven and to be in the presence of people that you have known and loved but the reason they're in heaven because of you. I can't think of any greater satisfaction. If you're here today and you're not what you ought to be as a child of God. I want you to come home. Let us pray with you and for you as we stand and sing.